Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Good evening, children of the night. Come on in and get situated. Your timing was perfect. I just wrapped up my first Clive Barker book. I'd seen a Hellraiser movie or two, but had never read any of the books. I started with the Scarlet Gospels, which was on last year's Reader's Choice list from Goodreads and Horror. I had read that there were people that were critical of whether or not it was truly horror story, because it was quite heavy on the urban fantasy as opposed to the gruesome, uncomfortable, terrible horror of other Harry D'Amour stories. I could see that. The book would be right at home on a shelf next to a Sandman Slim book, and a little farther away on the shelf from a Harry Dresden book. I found it a good read, and I'd recommend it to you, but despite what I just said, there are some pretty, I'll simply say, gross scenes in it. Clive Barker knows how to put a character together and then take them apart. Are you all settled? Let's hear some stories. Elizabeth Hand is the best-selling author of 13 genre-spanning novels and four collections of short fiction. Her work has received the World Fantasy Award four times, Nebula Award twice, Shirley Jackson Award also twice, and the International Horror Guild Award three times, the Mythopoeic Award, and the James Tiptree Jr. Award, among others, and several of her books have been New York Times and Washington Post notable books. Her recent critically acclaimed novels featuring Cass Neary, one of literary's great noir anti-heroes, Catherine Dunn, Generation Loss, Available Dark, and her forthcoming Hard Light, have been compared to those of Patricia Highsmith, with Paul Whitcover, Hand created DC Comics' early 1990s cult series Anima, whose riot girl superheroine dealt with homeless teenagers, drug abuse, the AIDS epidemic, and racial violence. 
and also featured DC Comics' first openly gay teenager. The series also once guest starred Conan O'Brien. Her 1999 play, Have Nots, was a finalist in London's Fringe Theatre Festival and went on to play at the Battersea Arts Centre. She has written numerous novelizations of films, including Terry Gilliam's Twelve Monkeys and a popular series of Star Wars books for middle-grade children. She is a longtime critic and book reviewer whose work appears regularly in the Los Angeles Times, Washington Post, Salon, and the Boston Review, among many others, and writes a regular column for the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Her books and short fiction have been translated in numerous languages and have been optioned for film and television. Han teaches at the Stone Coast MFA program in creative writing and recently joined the faculty of the Maine College of Art. She divides her time between the coast of Maine and northern London and is working on her fourth Cassie Neary novel, The Book of Lamps and Banners. Stay tuned. Here comes Elizabeth Han's Hungerford Bridge. I hadn't heard from Miles for several months when he wrote to ask if I wanted to get together for lunch. Well, of course I did, and several days later, I met him at a noisy, cheerful restaurant at South Bank. It was early February, London still somewhat dazed from the heavy snowfall that had recently paralyzed the city. The Thames seemed like a river of lead. Black skim of ice made the sidewalks treacherous. I'd seen another man fall as I'd walked from Waterloo Station and I wished I'd worn something warmer than the old wool greatcoat I'd had since college. But once settled in the seat across from Miles, all that fell away. You're looking well, Robbie, he said, smiling. You too. He smiled again, his pale eyes still locked with mine, and I felt that familiar frisson, cop twin chagrin and joy that I'd been summoned. We'd met decades earlier at Cambridge. If I hadn't been a Texan, with the faint gloss of exoticism conferred by my accent and Justin Boots, I doubt he would have bothered with me at all. But he did. Being chosen as a friend of Miles carried something of the unease of being hypnotized. Even now, I felt as I imagined a starling would, staring into the seed-black eyes of a crate. It wasn't just his beauty, still remarkable enough to turn heads in the restaurant, or his attire, though those would have been enough. Miles looked and dressed as though he'd stepped from a Beardsley drawing, wearing bespoke Edwardian suits and vintage Clark shoes he found at charity shops. He still wore his gray and hair longish, artfully swept back from a delicate face to showcase a mustache that, on special occasions, would be waxed and curled so precisely it resembled a tiny pair of spectacles perched upon his upper lip. On anyone else it would have looked twee. Actually, on Miles it looked twee, but his friends forgave him everything, even his drunken recitations of Peter Pan, in which he'd played the lead as a boy. I knew my place in the Neverland hierarchy. I was Smee. Sentimental, loyal, slightly ridiculous. I doubt that, even as an infant, Miles had ever been ridiculous. His demeanor was at once aloof and good-natured, as though he'd wandered into the wrong party, but was too well-mannered to embarrass his host or other guests by bringing this fact to their attention. His mother was a notorious groupie, who was living out her twilight years in Exeter. His father could have been any one of a number of major or minor rock stars, whose luxuriant hair and petulant mouth Miles had inherited. Back at Cambridge, he'd scattered off-hand anecdotes the way other students scattered cigarette ash. His great-aunt had been Diana Mitford's best friend. As a child, Miles had had tea with Mitford, and upon the aunt's death, 
he'd inherited a sterling lemon squeezer engraved with the initials A.H. Once, camping with a friend on Dartmoor, he'd found a dead stag slung over the branches of a tree, the footprints of an enormous cat in the boggy earth beneath. A German head of state had flayed him in a public men's room in Marrakesh. He'd been Jean Moreau's lover when he was thirteen, and had his first play produced at the Donmar Warehouse two years later. That sort of thing. Now he gazed at me and laughed in delight. Robbie, it really is so good to see you. When the waiter arrived, Miles asked for a Malbec that was not on the wine list, but which appeared and was opened with a flourish several minutes later. I will, Paul, thanks. Miles gently shooed the waiter off. Here, yeah, he filled my glass, and then his own. To happy endings. Over lunch we gossiped about old friends. Kevin Bailey had lost everything in the crash and was rumored to be living under an assumed name in Portugal. Missy Severance had done some work with a plastic surgeon Miles knew, and looked fabulous. Khalil Davin's third wife was expecting twins. And you've been okay? Miles refilled my glass. You really look great, Robbie. And happy. You even look relatively happy. I shrugged. I am happy. Happy enough, anyway. I mean, it doesn't take much. I've still got my job, at any rate. And my rent hasn't gone up. Hmm. For a minute, Miles stared at me thoughtfully. I was used to these silences, which usually preceded a count of recent disturbances among some subset of sexual specialists in a town I'd never heard of. Now, however, Miles just tapped his lower lip. Finally, he tilted his head, nodded, and gave me a sharp look. Come on, he said. He removed a sheaf of notes from his wallet and shoved them under the empty wine bottle, pulled on his fawn-covered overcoat and wide-brimmed hat as he headed towards the door. Let's get out of here. We walked across the Hungerford Bridge in the intermittent rain, skirting puddles and pockets of slush. Below us, the Thames reflected empty, parchment-colored sky. When I looked across the water, the buildings on the opposite bank seemed etched on a vast blank scroll. A barge's wake provided a single ink stroke. Gulls wheeled and screamed. The air smelled of petrol and snow. Beside me, Miles walked slowly, heedless of the damp staining the tips of his oxblood shoes. I think I'm going away, he said at last. Away? Where? I don't know. Australia, maybe. Or Tierra del Fuego. Someplace warm. <laughs> Tierra del Fuego is not warm. He laughed. Well, that settles it then. Australia. We'd reached the other side of the bridge, and Miles stopped, staring down past a dank alley. On the far side of the alley... A wedge of green gleamed between grammar buildings and cars that rushed past the Thames. An intricate warren at doors and tunnels that led into Embankment Tube Station. I was noted this bit of park as I rushed to or from work. A verdant mirage suspended between Victoria Embankment and the Royal of Central London. Like a shard of stained glass window that had survived the bombing of its cathedral. Depending on the season... The sidewalk leading to it might be rain-washed or sifted with autumn leaves between a huge, ivy-covered pane of tree. Now, the swatch of green glowed, lamp-like in the cold drizzle. Let's go down there, said Miles. I want to show you something. We wound our way through the pedestrian tunnel and downstairs into the street. A flower stall stood outside the subway entrance, banks of Asian lilies and creamy roses. Bundles of green wands of daffodils that had yet to bloom. It smelled like a garden after rain, or a wedding. 
A black-clad girl moved slowly among her wares, rearranging delphiniums and setting up placards with prices scrawled in red marker. Miles tipped his hat to her as we passed. She smiled, and the sweet sense of damp earth and frisia trailed us into the park. You know, I've never been here, I drew alongside Miles. All these years I've just seen it from up there. I pointed to where the bridge's span had disappeared behind a crosshatch of brick and peeling billboard. I don't even know what it's called. Victoria Embankment Park. Miles stopped and looked around, like a fox testing the air. I haven't been here for a while myself. For a few minutes we walked in silence. The park was much larger than I thought. There was an ornate water gate to one side, relic of a Tudor mansion now long gone. Silver maintenance men smoked and laughed outside a brick utility building. A few other people strolled along the sidewalk, hunched against the frigid rain. Businessmen, young woman walking a small dog, tall rhododendrons clustered along the path, leaves glossy as carven jade, and box trees that smelled mysteriously of my childhood. This was all the title show of the Thames. Miles gestured at the river. They filled it in around 1851, thus embankment. I always wondered what they'd find if they dug it up again. We continued on. Signs warned us from the grass, close-cropped as a golf green. A large statue of Robert Burns stared at us impassively. I wondered if this was what Miles had wanted me to see. But we walked past Burns, past the immense plane trees, shedding bark like lizard skin, past an outdoor cafe open despite the weather, and some wildly incongruous-looking palms with long, spear-shaped leaves. Perhaps a hundred feet away, Cleopatra's needle rose above the traffic, guarded by two patient sphinxes. Here, this is as good a spot as any. Miles walked to a bench and sat. I settled next to him, tugging my collar against the cold. I should have worn a hat. He didn't even glance at me. His eyes were fixed on a small curved patch of garden on the other side of the path, two steps away. Forlorn cowslips with limp stems and papery leaves had recently planted at the garden's edge. The wind carried the cold scent of overturned earth and a fainter, sweeter fragrance. Lilies of the valley, though I saw none in bloom. Here, too, the grass was cropped close, though there were several small depressions where the roots of a great plane tree thrust through the dirt. Moles, I thought, or maybe the marks of older plantains. Behind it all ran a crumbling brick wall about six feet in height, topped by the knotty intertwined branches of an espeliard tree growing on the other side. This, along with the ancient plane tree, made our bench feel part of a tiny enclave. The sounds of traffic grew muffled. People passing us on the main path just a few yards off seemed to lower their voices. What's well, lovely, I murmured. Hush, said Miles. He continued to gaze fiercely across the green sward across from us. I leaned back against the bench and tried to get comfortable. The brick wall provided some shelter from the rain, but I still shivered. After a few minutes, Miles moved so that he pressed against my side, and I sighed in thanks, grateful for the warmth. We sat there for a long time. Over an hour, I noted when I glanced at my watch, though Miles frowned so vehemently I didn't check again. Now and then I'd glance at him from the corner of my eye. He still stared resolutely at the patch of garden, his expression remote as Cleopatra's sphinxes. Another hour might have passed. The wind shifted, the rain stopped, and it felt warmer. The light slanting through the laden branches, tinged with violet. Beside me, Miles abruptly drew a deep breath as his body tensed. His face grew rigid, his eyes widened, and his mouth parted. I must have moved as well. He hissed warningly, 
and my gaze flashed back to the swath of grain. At the base of the plane tree something moved. A fallen leaf, I thought, or a ribbon of peeling bark trapped between tangled roots. Then it gave an odd sudden hop, and I thought it was some sort of wren, or even a large frog, or perhaps a child's toy. Then something scurried across the turf and stopped. For the first time I saw it clearly, a creature the size of my bald fist. A hedgehog, surely, pointed snout, upraised spines, tiny outthrust arrow of a tail, legs invisible beneath its rounded torso. But it was green. A brilliant jewel-like green, like the carapace of a scarab beetle. Its spikes weren't spikes at all, but tiny overlapping scales, or maybe feathers, shot through with iridescent mauve and amethyst as it moved. Its eyes were the rich damson of a pansy's inner petals. And as it nosed at the grass, I saw its snout ended in a beak like an echidna, the same deep purple as its eyes. I gasped and felt miles stiffen as the creature froze and raised its head slightly. A moment later it looked down and once more began poking at the grass. My heart raced. I shut my eyes, fighting to calm myself, but also to determine if it was a dream or some weird drunken flashback inspired by Miles. But when I looked again, the creature was still there, scurrying obliviously through tree roots and cowslips, its beak-like snout poked into the soft black earth, occasionally emerging with a writhing worm or beetle impaled upon it. Once, wind stirred a dead leaf, startled, the creature halted. Its scales rose to form a stiff, brilliantly colored armor. A farthingale glamoured in every shade of violet and green. Vermilion claws protruded from beneath its body. A bright droplet appeared at the end of the pointed beak as it made a low, ominous humming sound, like a swarm of bees. A minute crept by, and when no predator appeared, the scales flattened, the shining claws withdrew, and the creature scurried as before. Sometimes it came to the very edge of the garden plot, where upright paving stones formed an embankment. I would hold my breath then, terrified I might frighten it, but the creature only thrust its beak between the cracks and finally turned back. In all that time, I neither saw nor heard another person save Miles, silent as a statue beside me. I was so focused on the creature's solitary hunt, I might have been bludgeoned or robbed and never known it. Gradually, the afternoon wore away. Gradually, the world about us took on a lavender cast that deepened, from hyacinth to heliotrope, to the leaden, enveloping gloom of London's winter twilight. Without warning, the creature lifted its head from where it had been feeding, turned, scurried toward the plane tree, and disappeared into the one of the holes there. I blinked and held my breath again, willing it to reappear. It never did. After a minute, Miles leaned back against the bench and stretched. He looked at me, smiled, yet his eyes were sad. More than sad, he appeared heartbroken. What the hell was that? I demanded. Two teenagers walking side by side and texting on their mobiles glanced at me and laughed. The Emerald Foliate, Miles replied. What the hell is the Emerald Foliate? He shrugged. What you saw? That's it. Don't get pissy with me. It's all I know. He jumped to his feet, bounced up and down on his heels. Jesus, I'm frozen. Let's get out of here. I'll walk you back across the bridge. My leg was asleep, so it was a moment before I could catch up with him. For fuck's sake, Miles, you have to tell me what that was. What that was all about. I told you all I know. 
He shoved his hands into his pockets, shivering now himself. God, it's cold. It's called the Emerald Foliate. As who calls it the Emerald Foliate? Well, me, and the person who showed me, and now you. Well, but who showed you? Are there more? I mean, it should be in a museum, or a zoo, or, oh Christ, I don't know, something. Are they studying it? Why doesn't anybody know about it? Miles stopped beneath the overhang at the entrance to the tube station. He leaned against the wall, out of the wind, and a short distance from the throng, hurrying home to work. Nobody knows, because nobody knows, Robbie. You know, and I know. The person who told me, and I guess if he or she is still alive, the person who told him knows. But that's it. And that's all. In the whole world, we're the only ones. His eyes glittered. With excitement, but also tears. He wiped them away. Unashamed and smiled. I wanted you to know, Robbie. I wanted you to be the next one. I rubbed my forehead. In impatience and disbelief, swore loudly, then aligned myself against the wall at his side. I was trying desperately to keep my temper. Next one what? I said at last. The next one who knows. That's how it works. Someone shows you, just like I showed you, but then... His voice broke, and he went on. But then the other person, the, the first person, we never go there again. We uh, never see it again. Ever. You mean it only comes out like once a year or something? He shook his head sadly. No, it comes out all the time. I mean, I assume it does, but who knows? I've only seen it twice. The first time was when someone showed me, and now the second time. The last time. With you. But... I took a deep breath. Fumbled instinctively in my pocket for a cigarette, though I'd quit years ago. Yeah. Miles withdrew a leather cigarette case, opened it, offered one to me, and took one for himself, then lit both. I inhaled deeply, waiting before speaking again. Okay. So you showed it to me. Someone showed it to you. Who? When? I can't tell you. But a long time ago. Right after college, I guess. Why can't you tell me? I just can't. Miles stared at the pavement. It's not allowed. Who doesn't allow it? I don't know. It's just not done. And and you... He lifted his head to gaze at me, his eyes burning. You can't tell anyone either, Robbie. Ever. Not until it's your turn, and you show it to someone else. And then it's over. I never see it again. He nodded. Well, that's right. You never see it again. I felt a surge of impatience and despair just twice in my whole life. He smiled. Well, that's more than most people get. More than anyone gets except us. And whoever showed you, and whoever showed her, or him... Miles finished his cigarette, dropped it, and ground it fastidiously beneath the toe of one oxblood shoe. I did the same, and together we began to walk back upstairs. So how long has this been going on? We stepped into Hungerford Bridge, and I stopped to look down at the fractal view of the park, no longer green but yellowish with the glow of the crime lights. Hundred years? Thousands? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, the park wasn't always there, but... Something was. Before they made the embankment, the river, enormous houses, but I think it's gone on longer than that. And no one else knows? No one else knows. He gazed at the park, 
and then glanced over his shoulder at people rushing across the bridge. Someone bumped into me, muttered sorry, trudged on. Unless everyone else does, and they're all very good at keeping a secret. He laughed, and we started walking again. Why'd you decide to tell me? I don't know. I've known you so long, and you seem like someone who'd appreciate it. And also, you can keep a secret. Like you never told anybody about Brian and that dog in Sussex. I winced at the memory. Is there a set time when you tell the next person, or do you just make up your mind to do it? You can tell whoever you want, whenever you want. Some people do it right away. Next day, a week later. I think most people wait. That's what I was told, anyway. Though you don't want to wait too long. I mean, you don't want to wait until you're so ancient and infirm you forget about it, or die before you can tell the next one. I must have looked stricken, because he laughed again and put his arm around me. No, I'm fine, Robbie. I swear, I just, you know, decided it was time for a change of scenery. Warmer climbs. Adventures. A new career. In a new town. We'd reached the far side of the bridge. I'll leave you here. He raised a finger, touched it to my lips. Not a word, he murmured, and then kissed my cheek in farewell, spun on a sail, began striding back across the bridge. I watched him go. His fawn-colored greatcoat, wide-brimmed hat, till the night swallowed him. For a few minutes I stood there, gazing past the bridge's span to the dark river below, the image of a gem-like creature flickering across my vision and Miles' kiss still warm on my cheek. Then I turned, head down, as a blast of wind blew up from the underground station and hurried to catch my train. That was Elizabeth Hand's Hungerford Bridge, as read by Logan Waterman. Logan has a degree in technical theater from California State University and has worked in many theaters, large and small, professional and amateur. He has also worked for Apple computers, sold hot tubs and comic books, and prepared court documents. He has taught and performed sword fighting for the stage and run lights for a local band until they broke up. As of writing this bio, he has narrated for the Drabble cast and nearly all of the District of Wonder shows Starship Sofa right here at Tales to Terrify and the late lamented Protecting Project Pulp and Crime City Central. He's looking at you, far-fetched fables. Logan currently lives in Northern California with Grendel, a huge black beast whose primary occupations are sleeping, stocking the fish in the aquarium and keeping the house safe from the hordes of invisible monsters that come out after dark, and Morgana, a small, fluffy queen who rules her domain with an iron paw. The fish, to this day, are unpressed. Thank you, Logan. Our second story of the evening, Children of the Night, comes from Simon Bestwick. Simon Bestwick lives in Lancashire and is the author of two novels, Tide of Souls and the just-released The Faceless, a collection of Hazy Shade of Winter, just re-released as an e-book and Pictures of the Dark, and a chapbook, Angels of the Silences. A short e-book collection set in the world of The Faceless is forthcoming and is a new short story collection, and two of his short stories, The Moraine and Dermont have been reprinted in Ellen Datlow's Best of Horror of the Year, number four. When not working on a new novel, he tries in vain to have a life and catch up on his sleep. Now, prepare your ears for Simon Bestwick's The Churn. (laughs) 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It started when Alison locked herself out. She normally checked her bag before shutting the front door, but was in a rush that day. It swung to and latched behind her. In the end, she had to break in. She should have given George over the road a spare. She smashed the glass panel, let herself in, found the key. The police car pulled up outside as she was ready to leave. The officer was about twenty-five. She could have been his mother, but had that superior air a little taste of power could bring... There was a trainee manager at the insurance company like that, Roger, an arrogant, supercilious little toad who talked to colleagues as if they were children or half-wits. She explained what had happened, but the look on the officer's face was just shy of contempt. He didn't say, you stupid cow, but might as well have. How many times is this you've locked yourself out now, Mrs Corbett? It's Miss Corbett, and this is the first time, the only time... He raised his eyebrows, spoke slowly. "'Are you sure about that, Miss Corbett?' "'Yes.' She couldn't keep an edge out of her voice. "'Because that's not what I've been told, Mrs Corbett.' "'What?' Surely he couldn't talk to her like this, and yet he was. It was almost surreal. "'At least three times in the past month, that's what I've heard.' "'What? That's ridiculous. Who on earth told you that?' Just some of your neighbours. They're concerned about you. Who? Calm down, Miss Corbett. I can't tell you that. Anyway. He turned back to his car. If all's in order now, I'll let you get on. He looked back, holding the door handle. But I might ask someone to look in on you, just to be sure. What do you... But he appeared to have developed selective deafness. The car door closed, the engine started, and he pulled away. She watched the police car round the corner and disappear, then remembered her bus. She broke into a trot. She'd be late. And she was, and got a fairly public dressing down from the office manager, despite having worked there for five years with an exemplary record. She fumed silently at her desk, praying Roger would leave her alone, for his own good. At lunch, she decided to treat herself to a bar of chocolate, and looked in her desk drawer for change. She found it under a crumpled wad of papers. 
Alison frowned. Wads of unfamiliar paper, crumpled or otherwise, had no place in her desk. She spread them out, examining them in detail. Then a small, startled noise escaped her, and she clapped her hand over her mouth. Heads turned her way. She mumbled an excuse, stuffed the papers in her pocket. They were receipts. From locksmiths. All for her. All for getting her back into her home, after she'd locked herself out. Each dated within the past month. The lunch hour was crisp and cool out in the suburbs. Alison had no appetite, not even for chocolate. She made for the park. The greenery was turning red, russet and gold leaves falling in drifts as the days cooled and the nights drew in. That would soothe her, calm her down, make the prospect of the day bearable. It wasn't a good atmosphere anyway at work, not then. Business had been poor the management blaming anyone and everyone for it bar themselves. No one's job felt secure. They were only a small firm. Two employees had already been sacked for churning. Instead of amending a policy because details had changed, you cancelled it and incepted a new one in order to claim a sale. The old one was replaced with a virtual replica, subtly different to serve your purposes. It was wrong, but the pressure to increase sales made it almost inevitable. At least Alison's job had none of that. Enough talking shop. She told herself to relax, open up to her surroundings, as she walked up the high street towards the park. The lunch hour crowds shuffled by. Here and there folks stood still, waiting for buses or friends. Across the street, one man stood facing her. He wore evening dress, complete with top hat, and a crude mask of some kind. An animal, she thought. The eye holes were very large. She could see his eyes through them. Wolf, a bearded man, thirty-ish, fingers brushing her arm. She stared at him. You're right, Wolf. Yes. Yes, I'm fine. She tried to calm herself, appear friendly. He seemed concerned. You look like you've seen a ghost. She forced a laugh. Oh, no... No, just... She pointed, but the masked man was gone. No sign at all. How could he have? She stared, looking wildly about, back to the bearded man, then across the street once more. She felt her lips move, but nothing came out. The bearded man stared back at her, looking nervous. He mumbled something, backed away, hurried off. Alison glanced round, saw a few glances in her direction. She almost ran towards the park. She managed somehow to get through the rest of the day and home without further mishap. Plywood still covered the broken glass in the door. Tiny crumbs of glass she hadn't yet swept away caught up in the streetlight's glow. She rang Graham. She didn't want to be alone. He was gallantry itself and promised to pick up a Chinese takeaway. Alison opened a bottle of wine and savoured a slow glass, waiting for him. She prided herself on her memory and had no doubt whatsoever she hadn't locked herself out. And yet, the policeman had been one thing, and who'd told him it had happened before? But the receipts, unless they'd been faked. But who could fake the receipts? And more to the point, why? Graham knocked on the door shortly thereafter. He was a friend of several years standing, although she knew he'd have liked to have been more. She considered it once or twice, but valued her independence, 
especially since a divorce. Nonetheless, he was good company and conversation, and she needed that tonight. What is it? he asked. You seem preoccupied. She told him, the locking out, the receipts. I don't recall you mentioning anything like that to me, he said. But I could have forgotten. It, it doesn't make you senile. Not once, she thought, but three times. After Graham had gone, she went to bed and lay there for a long time. There was no history in her family of mental illness. She clung to that. She'd always been as fit as a fiddle, in body and mind. But how could she be sure if she couldn't rely on her memory? And what about the masked man? It had looked homemade, clashing with the evening dress, which could have been cheap, a prank to impress the grandchildren. Something about him had made her think he was quite elderly. Despite everything, she began to drift off. She was almost asleep when she heard noises, faint but distinct from downstairs. The temptation was to ignore them and they'd go away. But what if they didn't? Not for the first time she cursed herself for failing to install a phone extension upstairs. Either she ventured downstairs or waited to see if anyone came up. That spurred her into life. She rose, dressed, not quietly either. A friend once told that making a noise was best to scare off an intruder, unless it was the kind who thought nothing of deliberate harm. There was an old poker in the wardrobe. She took it and crept onto the landing, then slowly, step by step, started down. A faint noise came from the kitchen to her right. She glanced left into the front room, saw no sign of movement. The kitchen then. She took a deep breath and swung in, poker aloft. Saw nothing. Another door, in the kitchen wall to her right, opened into the space under the stairs. She advanced, palms clammy on the poker handle, her own breaths loud and fast. She grabbed the handle, pulled the door open, a squeak of fright escaping as... It was empty. She lunged with her free hand, hitting the light switch inside the cupboard. The light came on. Nothing. Alison breathed out. Someone else breathed in. Alison became still. The sound had come from her right, near the kitchen door where she'd come in. In the front room, pressed against the wall, must have been, followed me in. The other breathed out. There was nothing else to do. Slowly, Alison turned, the poker hanging limp and forgotten in her hand. The air was thick and unwilling like treacle. Surely, before she could complete the turn, or in an instant she had, the intruder would fling himself upon her and... But he didn't. It was a he, all right. She could tell that even though he was only a bulky silhouette. And there was something wrong with the shape of his head. The kitchen lights were beside the door, near where he stood. Why hadn't she thought of them? The intruder reached out an arm and clicked the switch. The fluorescent strip light above flickered into life. It glinted on silver hair, showing in the gaps between a top hat and a crudely made animal mask. Had she glimpsed it briefly earlier that day in the high street? Had that been how she'd known he was elderly? For all that, he could still do harm. He leaned on a stout black walking stick, 
and he was a big man. She could see the glisten of his eyes behind the mask, but not their colour. They stared at each other. She felt panic rising in her. The masked man raised a finger to his lips and whispered, "'Shh!' Alison screamed. She was still screaming when the man vanished back through the doorway, still screaming when her neighbours knocked the plywood panel loose from the front door and let themselves in. "'I did not imagine that man,' Alison insisted the next day. Miss Coombs sighed pityingly. She had already done so several times, cocking her pretty blonde head to the side as she did so and pursing her lips. If she did it again, Alison thought it entirely possible she might strangle the wretched girl, although that, she realised, would hardly help. Miss Coombs sat in Alison's best armchair, red-nailed fingers interlaced, a cup of tea gently steaming untouched on the small table to one side. She periodically surveyed the room, as if its state was further evidence of madness. It had been cleaned a couple of days ago. Surely that should be enough. A leather briefcase sat at Miss Coombe's feet. Her voice was gentle, reasonable and utterly maddening. "'You stated quite clearly the man ran into the front room,' she said. "'There was nowhere else he could have gone.' "'He could have hidden.' Alison mumbled. "'I'm sorry.' He could have hidden. Even to her it sounded lame. Miss Coombs gave her another pitying sigh. Alison exercised restraint on an almost heroic scale. "'Let's review the facts, Miss Corbett. You lock yourself out of your house for the fourth time in a month. When a police officer calls by to investigate... He describes your behaviour as defensive and uncooperative, and you deny all knowledge of previous instances. Alison clenched her jaw to keep from screaming. That's why social services were contacted, Miss Corbett. And now you've thrown half the street into panic and had the police called out again. Miss Coombs leant forward in the nice armchair. Do you still maintain a man meeting that description was in your house? Alison could make no reply. Unless, of course, your neighbours helped him escape. Miss Coombs raised an eyebrow. For an instant, some grain of hope flared up in the exposed phosphorus in Alison. But the look on Miss Coombs' face told her it shouldn't have. It was exactly what the social worker had been looking for. "'Tell me, Miss Corbett,' Miss Coombs asked, "'do you ever feel that people are plotting against you?' "'So what happened?' demanded Graham. "'She asked who my GP was, "'and she's calling round again next week to make an appointment,' Alison said. Her teacup rattled in its saucer. Graham took it gently from her. "'What is it?' he asked. Two doctors,' Alison said. "'Sorry?' "'It only takes two doctors to get you sectioned. "'Certified. Committed. "'Whatever you want to call it.' "'Graham took her hand. "'But I know what I saw, Graham. "'I know what I saw.' "'His face was guarded, blank. "'Graham?' "'He picked up the locksmith's receipts and unfolded them, "'holding them in front of her. 
She snatched her hand back. He just looked at her. His face was blank. What was it trying to cover? Fear? Pity? She prayed it was only her rising paranoia that saw triumph. The next day was a Friday. The week was nearly at an end. She forced herself to go in. Glances prickled her skin. She wanted to shout at them to go away, leave her alone, stop talking among themselves. But of course she must not. It would prove them right. She tried to work, but all that went on inside her head was the single question and the struggle to answer it. Am I mad? The answer was like a flipped coin, eternally spinning. Head you are, tails you're not. Just get through the day. Just get through. At the end of the shift, she just wanted to go. But a couple of colleagues invited her to the pub. She agreed, just for one. It was acceptance. It proved they weren't all against her. And it was better than being home alone, at night, lying awake, dreading the sounds of movement from downstairs. The pub. She remembered that, and ordering a white wine. After that, nothing, until she woke up, cold and shivering. And it was dusk. But it had been dark when we went to the pub, and... Loud noises, people shouting, loud, brassy music, a cold wind. She was sat in some sort of bus shelter. She felt sick, and there was a smell of stale alcohol. Oh, God! Oh, God! She stood and stared out, uncomprehending at the sea. She worked in a suburb of Manchester, nowhere near the sea. Loud music, lights. She looked and stared at the pier jutting out into the grey, dark waves. Looked around, saw the tower. Blackpool! She stumbled down the prom. Oh, God! How much could she have had to drink? She couldn't remember anything. Dear God, if that Coombs bitch found out. The train station. Head for the train station. Which way? She started to cross the main road, but stopped when a tall figure in evening dress stepped out from behind a lamp post. Other movements. She turned. Three figures. A few yards behind her, smartly dressed, face covered with closely fitting but utterly featureless masks. Alison started to run. She stumbled down the pavement, jostling through men dressed as soldiers, cowboys, prisoners, girls dressed as nurses, cave women, police women. She almost called out on their help, till she realised. Even if they'd been real, how could she have trusted them? A figure looming up ahead, evening dress, top hat, mask. She staggered round him, horns blaring, looked back, he watched her go. Away, away from the blaring horns, music, voices, lights, painted faces, costumes, to the south shore, the quieter, the poorer section. Her lungs were burning up. Behind her, there were rustles. She stopped, clinging to her lamppost. She was exhausted, age and sickness catching her up, and saw the tall, evening-dressed figure strolling after her flanked by two others in those blind, featureless masks. She turned to run on, to dash across the mouth of the side street she'd reached, but opposite, on the far side, stood two others, masked, who started towards her. 
she ran down the side street. The lamps were on, but the houses were dark. The doors and windows tinned up. Faceless figures at the far end of the street. Footsteps clicked behind her. But the grind and scrape of metal being pulled loose from its fixings. She looked. The tin sheet over a doorway being pushed away. A masked figure stepping out. Its hands rose. Pulled off its mask. It was the policeman who'd come to her house. There were more grindings as the sheeting was pushed clear of doorway after doorway, and figure after figure was unmasked. She saw Roger from the office. A half-dozen figures from the office. The bearded man who'd stopped to distract her from her first sighting of the masked man. Assorted passers-by who'd ignored the masked man's presence. Her neighbours. George, from over the road. They were either side of the street, at either end. The masked man grew closer, and the two flanking him. One was a man, one a woman. The woman unmasked. He was Miss Coombs, and now the man. He reached up to the mask. There was something familiar about him. Oh, no. There was no horror when she saw Graham's face. Only despair. They were closing in on all sides now. There was nowhere to go. She was at the mouth of a driveway. Behind her the house was dark, but not tinned up. The front door was ajar. She ran for it, slammed it shut. It had bolts. She shot them across and backed away. Hands banged and scraped at the door, the windows, noises from behind. They were at the back door. She hit the light switches, but the darkness stayed. Alison ran upstairs. The house was empty. She ran for the front bedroom, looked out. As she did, the scraping and the banging died away, and she saw them backing into the road to stare up at her. There was a moment of silence. Then they began to hum. It was low and deep, like an organ note. She felt the house vibrate gently. She retreated from the window as their mouths opened. A single note. Dust sifted down from the ceiling. Alison slid down the wall, crying softly. More dust was dislodged from the structure of the house, and something else seemed to be also. Something darker, swirling through the rooms and hallways like smoke, closing in. She shrank inside herself. Her links to the world outside were frayed already easily broken. It seemed safer to retreat. Only when what their quarrel had released followed through and into the dark hidden spaces within her, drowning who she was and replacing her with itself, did she realise how wrong she'd been. That was Simon Bestwick's The Churn as read by Ashley Story. Aged 11, Ashley performed her first-ever stand-up comedy routine at the International Women's Day celebration in Glasgow and went on to do stand-up in London, supporting the likes of Omid Dejali and Donna McPhail, and she appeared on the London Tonight TV show. In 1999, still only 13, she wrote, produced, and performed her own show, What Were You Doing When You Were 13? at the Edinburgh Fringe, becoming the youngest ever stand-up in the history of the festival. 
She received rave reviews and was guest presenter at the Disney Channel that same year. She continued to perform comedy in clubs, pubs around Glasgow and the UK until she took up PR and started her own small business, aged 16, at the Edinburgh Fringe, promoting stand-up comics and theater groups. In 2003, she co-directed her mother Janie's play, The Point of Yes, at the Edinburgh Fringe and subsequently at the Soho Theater in 2004. The two wrote and performed together in their comedy sketch show Square Street at the 2006 Edinburgh Fringe. Ashley graduated with honors from her film and screenplay studies degree course and has since been directing and writing for BBC Radio and TV. Ashley now does a weekly podcast with her mother called Janie Godley's Podcast and has returned to the stand-up comedy scene. Thank you, Ashley. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Our show was produced by our editors Philip Oldham and Scott Silk and theme music by David Raiklin. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.